Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Coming to you from the other London, let's start the show. Welcome to GradCast, the official radio station of our Society of Graduate Students. It is six o'clock, and you know what that means. It's time to meet another student here at Western University in Graduate Studies. My name is Tanya Nagpal, and I'm joined here with Yemen. Hello. It is our first time being hosts of this radio show. So, Yemen, how are you feeling? I'm feeling great. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing good. Um, so we're really excited. So bear with us. It's hopefully going to be a great show. No, it is going to be a great show. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> exactly. So we're going to introduce you to our host, or sorry, our guest for today. We have Alan Delpino with us today. Hello, everyone. So, Alan, can you tell us a little bit, a bit about yourself? You're in the... What department are you in? Um, I'm actually in the Department of Media Studies at the Faculty of Information and... Uh, I, I, I forgot the last letter. Oh, you have media studies. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's me. Absolutely. Okay. Are you, you're a master's student, that's right? I'm a first-year master's student, yes. Okay. Can you tell us what, uh, what is media studies? Like, what sort of media do you study, and how do you study it? Well, to answer that, I'm going to turn the question back to you, and what do you think of when you think of the media? You've got to answer this one. He's asking you. Oh. Well, I mean, we, we're, we are on the media right now, are we not? So, Radio, TV, you know, broadcasting? Yeah, you're actually right. So uh, a great example of the media would be the radio. Um, but the, radio, the media also includes things like television, internet, um, any form of communication that occurs through a mediated device, which is something electronic that we use um, to talk, would be, you know, the media. And, and media studies basically analyzes different factors that are associated with the structure of the media, with different stereotypes, how people are represented, how people are not potentially represented, um, cultural norms, as well as um, implicit truths that may not necessarily become evident when you just watch something, like a film. So I'm going to dive right into your research because it's really exciting and we want to share that with our listeners. So you look at cloud computing services and its impact and role in the global production of knowledge-based labor. So to start off, what is cloud computing services? So cloud computing services are basically any type of service that can be connected through the use of the internet that allow people to collaboratively work over long distances. So um, the specific service that I'm interested in getting to know, because I'm a new graduate student, would be um, the Google Docs Suite. Do you use the Google Docs Suite? I do. What do you typically use it for? Um, usually if you're doing any meetings or you're sharing minutes with, amongst a group, then you have your Google Docs up and everyone can edit it if you're working on a project together. Yeah. Even on GradCast, we have our uh, guest schedule done as a Google Docs Excel file. That's fantastic. What can I tell you about uh, my research other than that? <laughs> so basically, you think that it's possible that free access to cloud computing services, so this is something like Google Docs, which is accessible to everybody, um, it can actually devalue intellectual wage labor. So to break that down, so tell us what you mean by intellectual wage labor. So intellectual wage labor, in order to describe that, I would have to probably do a, a throwback to regular wage labor. Um, a wage is just basically something that we get for completing work. So intellectual-based labor would be anything that we create, for instance, a document, an Excel spreadsheet, um, a form of accounting that would be something that we created not with necessarily our bodies, but with our minds. So basically, uh, you know, as university graduate students, our research, all the stuff we write, 
would qualify as a sort of knowledge labor. Is that right? Absolutely. Everything we do in graduate school is uh, almost everything um, would be a form of knowledge-based labor. Yep. So when you say that access, free access, sorry, to cloud computing services is actually devaluing this, what does that mean? So, so I, I'm not too sure yet if it actually is devaluing it. it okay. Devaluating um, it. I'm think I'm wondering if it can. So, if we think about uh, globalization, we sometimes think about how. Um, large corporations like Microsoft or, say, Samsung, might use the labor of other countries um, for the sake of creating products like an iPhone or an Android phone. Mm -hmm. So sometimes when we think about um, globalization, we think, we think of uh, wages, or we think of, rather, we think of the final product that we get. So I got this new Samsung phone. It's amazing, and I would like that product to be affordable. Okay. So um, the idea is that Samsung pr companies like Samsung and Apple may use the labor, the physical labor of uh, people in marginalized nations um, in order to create their products. And they might do that for a wage labor that is much lower than standards in North America. So, you know, some people consider that idea exploitation, like using the labor of another country and paying them less money than uh, those people, those workers would get paid in uh, developed countries like Canada or the United States. So my research tries to investigate, like, can cloud computing services basically allow um, large corporations like Google to also potentially pay academics or graduate students in other areas of the world um, less than they would pay us or potentially nothing? Is, is that a possibility? So I don't know for sure if it is, but I would like to find out. Uh, Alan, if I could, like, is, is this, like, a fair comparison? And, like, I imagine... Like grad students say of like 20, 30, 40 years ago when we wrote our dissertations on typewriters and got our, like, got our paper journals and our paper books and how the – like uh, digital sources and even just word processors made it so that like the same amount of work could be done in less time and that like would devalue that. Is that like a similar process? Is just happening on another scale with the cloud computing? Is that like, am I getting on the right track there? Okay, in order to maybe contextualize my argument, um, sometimes we think about new communications technologies and we don't um, think of the historical context um, that these technologies emerged from. So previous technologies, for instance, the television, um, it was heralded in the past as this amazing emancipatory technology that could potentially uh, diminish global learning and people could take lectures on television and learn things. Um, but historically, that hasn't really been the case. So, you know, sometimes when we think of these new technologies, we don't contextualize them within a you know, the past of using technologies. So my research attempts to situate a new technology with older forms of information communication technologies in order to understand um, things like what you discussed. Like, does this technology actually live up to what it says it can do? Like, can it actually help us or is it actually exploiting us? You know, is it good or bad? So it's sort of like one of the underlying themes of what you want to do. Uh, sort of a critique on this idea that Technology is good. Technology uh, solves problem. It solves problems. It makes things better. It makes life better. It makes everything more effective, more efficient. And what you're thinking about doing is like poking holes in the argument, looking at potential consequences, new problems that could be caused by introduction of new technologies. Um, essentially, yes. But but I would like to potentially um, introduce the theory that I'm using to investigate this question. Is yeah, that okay? Go for it. Yes, please. Um, so the theory that there's only a couple, uh, well, there's many major media theories, um, but the one that I'm most interested in is called political economy. And um, basically political economy 
basically tries to help us understand power and um, the power that's embedded within structures of organizing. Okay. All right, you just had a mouthful there, because yeah. uh, like power is a, a big term I, sure. I, in, in the theory thing. So like. Because like you, we, I mean, we could do like three a three hour episode on Foucault or something. Sure. But, but like, what's like the one sentence idea of what power would be in the way that you're saying it? Sure, power in the sense that um, to what extent does the organization of a communications media, such as cloud computing, um, to what extent does that allow individuals or groups of individuals to leverage their positions over others that may not have access to the same uh, means? So let's let's tie Google into this. So can you give me more of an example using the Google Drive? Um, yeah, sure. So so if we think of like the different uh, functionalities that are associated with the Google Doc Suite, there's the Docs, which is creating documents. There's also the Excel spreadsheets. It could be used to create presentations. And um, what, what I'm basically interested in is can this uh, easy access can the easy access to this com- communications technology um, result in labor occurring simultaneously or near simultaneously globally, and as a result, potentially devaluating the wages that we may be, be paid to produce the same labor in developed nations. Okay, Alan, could you uh, help me connect the dots here? Why would the fact that you know Google Docs could potentially allow work to be happening collaboratively all over the place all the time, why, how would that devalue work or decrease wages? Um, well, there's, this been, there's been this trend in the academy of lowering wages, and that's why we have this great union in order to protect our wages. And um, I, I, there's, just a, there's just a fear in my mind that you know, information communications technologies can be used in order to exploit individuals or could be used in order to take advantage of potentially lower wages in other areas. So they pay us as uh, academics or junior researchers to create research on behalf of the university. And that's a way of marketing the university, um, also a way for us to market ourselves and to develop, to develop skills. But um, do they necessarily need to do that? Like, could, could they instead uh, use these services as a means of uh, not paying individuals to get the same kind of uh, prestige or outcomes? Like, could they generate research globally and not fund those students? The potential is there, is all I'm saying. I don't have concrete answers, right. so um, and, and, and I'm just starting to investigate this. So, yeah. so for our listeners, Alan is in his first year, so um, of your master's. Yeah. Um, so he's just starting out. He's uh, preparing his prospectus. So um, we're really getting to see the beginning of this great research. Um, so, what methodology do you plan on using to get the answers that you're looking for? Sure. Uh, the methodology I'm mainly interested in using is case studies. So um, the main purpose I plan on using case studies is uh, to contextualize the cloud computing services, um, or rather to compare cloud computing services with previous technologies such as uh, the the telephone or the a- any older technology. Really, you could just situate that. Mm-hmm. So you know, how is this different? Like, like what were the things that were heralded with that communications technology? Like, what were the big trends that this thing was supposed to accomplish? Did it accomplish that? And then um, potentially trying to uh, like relate that to cloud computing to provide historical context. Awesome. So, what what uh, motivated you to get interested in this topic? Um, yeah, I've always been interested in um, issues of power, and I've I've also in the past worked for a lot of uh, freelance jobs, a lot of uh, non-steady jobs uh, where the wages weren't as high. 
So I've always wondered, you know, I've always questioned while doing my uh, menial jobs that were not academic, um, you know, what is the power structure of this institution? How can that impact my life? You know, does this, ins- like, so, so, so I've always been interest- interested in issues of power. And this theory of political economy just allows me to investigate that in relation to media studies. So that's really interesting. Um, I'm just thinking like Google Drive or, or the Google Doc Suite, that's something that we use all the time and we kind of it's kind of engraved in our day-to-day use as graduate students. So coming from a complete outside perspective from media studies, I would never look at the power that Google has. Um, so you talked a little bit about the power that Western might have or any university, not just Western, on their graduate students. So can you talk a little bit about how Google itself has power by having this Doc Suite? Um, I think an easier way to understand this um, would be to relate this to the production of commodities. So the production of, uh, I use in the past the smartphone example, but instead I'll use a Apple. I'll use Apple as an example because it might be easier to understand in this concept of, you know, global creation of intellectual work. So uh, Apple, for instance, they create tons of products that we typically purchase in developed nations. They're very expensive. Um, if you look at the latest iPhone, it costs probably more than um, any of the other major phones that are available. So what people don't often realize when they purchase that phone is that it was created using the raw materials and the labor of um, the entire, almost not necessarily the entire world, but different parts of regions around the world. So we don't often think, like, how did this, the creation of my phone um, result in, you know, someone in a marginalized area not being paid maybe all that well in order to go about producing something, some special good that's key to the creation of our phones. We, we often just see our, our products and we don't think of, you know, the construction of the product. So, so, so it looks like you have something to say. Yeah, yeah. actually, I was wondering about um, that example. I, I mean, I hear people use it all the time, um, how a lot of manufacturing, a lot of uh, this, our electronics are put together in uh, other countries that uh, pay their workers a lot less than they would if those workers had uh, been working in Canada, for example. Mm. And I was wondering if you could help explain um, cost of living, all sorts of things are... The situation in other countries is different. Would it, is it reasonable to expect, say, like every worker in every country to be paid sort of the same wage? Would, you know, even being paid less than we would, uh, someone in a different country would a lower wage not be fair? So, so that's a good question, and um, I'm going to segue it to a theory um, that tries to investigate that question. There's this theory called world systems theory, and it basically is the idea that there's core countries and there's semi-periphery com- countries and there's the periphery countries. And um, the core countries are basically the areas where um, all the profit goes back to. So, you know, we take the labor that's... Uh, the cheap labor of these poorer countries, uh, and we use that for the sake of the construction of our products, and then we import those uh, products back to these core countries that have the money to actually afford those products, and then we we buy them. So we sometimes don't think like it's not necessarily bad. I think that that they that wages are different, but my focus is hopefully just to discover areas of exploitation. And, and, and if you think of someone, for instance, in a marginalized country, I, I don't have one off the top of my head, um, think of the factory workers who create the chips that go into our phones. Can they afford any of the products that, 
that that we make or like that we buy here? Like, could they afford the latest iPhone? Yemen? Okay. Uh, well, probably not, right? So, are your ideas sort of similar to um, back when manufacturing was first? Starting up, um, Ford was famous for saying that you know people who worked in his factories at his assembly lines would be paid a wage that would allow them to purchase the cars that they were building themselves. Is it something like that? Uh, basically, um, what I'm researching is deeply rooted in things like that because that's basically a political economic analysis of manufacturing. Um, but and the reason why I apologize right now for some of my comments being a bit uh, maybe vague, and that's because. Um, this is something that I'm newly embarking on, but basically I'm using that historical context, which is a great provided, and trying to compare a new technology that we don't know much about, that we often hear all sorts of advertising and ideology about by these companies for the sake of profit. Like the the theory of, of political economy basically just tries to investigate like what what really is going on here. You know, like are are these ideologies true that these companies propose in regards to their products, or is there more to it? But Alan, isn't Google's motto motto to do no evil? I mean, if it says on the tin, it must be true. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I might be. I, I honestly don't know. <laughs> uh, I actually have a question about about this whole like uh, this chain, this um, chain of like globalized labor that like you use the iPhone analogy, which will sure. probably be really interesting to talk about. You know, uh, this potential dystopian future where uh, research is done by by poor people working on like their side of planet. But I'm thinking like. Uh, when we look at the supply chain for an iPhone, it's it, it, the the value added or the value um, the amount of money that somebody makes, like the wages get better the higher up on the food chain you are. So, like uh, the person who the consumer is the one who makes the most money. You know, the people who make the, who like the people at Apple. Further down the chain, you have like uh, places like in uh, Korea or in uh, China of these like assembly line uh, assemblers. But then even further down the line, you now have like this new um, globalized part of like the people working in cobalt mines in, in the Congo. Do you see that kind of hierarchy of like the further up the food chain you go, the higher you – the bigger piece of the um, value of the objects you're creating? Do you see that happening um, with things like research with a cloud computing background? Well, yeah, that, that's a really good question, and I appreciate it because it's one that I might be able to answer right now. Um, and I think that um, the problem with new technologies is that we don't analyze them historically, and we don't think of uh, the power structures that are embedded within these technologies necessarily at first. So if you think of Google Docs, it's offered for free. Have you ever wondered um, why is this potentially free? I mean, I think their model works that you can pay them for extra storage space, and this is kind of like their foot in the door. But also, I imagine they make a good amount of money off of the data you're generating by making it. Like, I'm sure that when you agreed to do it, you said, oh, yeah, by the way, we get to look at everything you're making, and we can use it for any purpose whatsoever. And so I imagine that they're selling some of the stuff that you're writing about and and putting in your your uh, Google Drives um, to people like... Well, I mean, the typical business model is advertisers. Is I, I don't know. Is, 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 I'll ask you. <laughs> and so that's a good question. Um, political economy just basically tries to look at the hierarchy of how something's organized and to answer questions like that. Like, what? How do they make their money off of these things? You know, like like is it is it uh, is it completely benevolent? Do no evil. Like, is that really what they're doing, or is there more to it? I don't know right now. I haven't done the research, but hopefully I will, and hopefully it'll get funded. Does that mean you're going to have to actually read an entire user agreement? 
I may. <laughs> I, I don't, I, I'm not too exactly sure how I'll go about doing that, but um, I hope to find out the power. You know, who has the power? Why does it matter? Does it matter? Um, so going back to this food chain, I was just thinking, um, is that food chain applicable only in the core countries that you mentioned? Because I'm going to use engineering as an example. So um, engineer here in Canada might be getting paid more than an engineer or an engineer type position. I'm going to say making the, the chips that go on your phones, an engineering type position, they're going to be paid less in a marginalized country. So is that what you're looking at when you look at the wage labor gap or the intellectual? Uh- uh, much much of this research is honestly based upon a fear that continually, you know, academics are getting paid less and less for what they do. There's this new precarious state of people getting paid um, almost nothing for the sake of their labor and knowledge-based labor. If you look at FIMS, I, I, I'm not meaning to bash FIMS. I love my faculty, but um, there are times when part-time faculty aren't paid the same wages as tenured faculty. It's actually much less. Um, I actually have a friend, a six-year PhD student, who teaches, and he's trying to finish his degree. He's trying to make something out of his life and his career, but his knowledge-based labor is valued so lowly. And I, this research is, is mainly based on a fear of, of wondering, you know, like, in the future, will this matter? Like, will our knowledge-based labor have a value with the declining wages that are occurring in, this, in the state of uh, academia you know, there's such a huge gap between tenured faculty and contract faculty. And I think it's uh, something that needs to be investigated and maybe uh, improved upon. I think that's, I think that's so interesting. Um, and what's interesting is although you're in FIMS and media studies, your work is completely applicable to any faculty, any, um, any student department, faculty, staff. Um, so that's very exciting. So what, how do you hope to, or how do you, if you could have it the ideal way, you hope your research gets applied? Um, I hope to better understand the technologies that we use every day, the power structures behind those technologies, to investigate, as Noam Chomsky says, the ideologies that are proposed to us in an attempt to understand truth, whatever that may be, critically, and hopefully have people care about it. So more concretely, are you just looking at this because you're worried you won't get paid after you graduate? <laughs> I, I'm worried that... Um, the global state of knowledge-based labor is degrading and that there's something better can be done. And I hope to find out what can be done that's better. That's great motivation for all of us. <laughs> to seize the means of intellectual production. <laughs> um, okay, so I, one, la- uh, one last question from me anyway. Uh, what would you say about the concept of, uh, I'm not even sure if it has a theoretical model attached to it, but like exploiting passion. Like, because uh, I came here from audio engineering and like, you're expected to work like 80, 90 hours a week with no pay for like two years. I'm just going to let you go because you're like... Yeah, so, so this is perfect. I'm actually going to a lecture very shortly that discusses that. And there's this political economic idea of, you know, the people um, who actually get paid to do this artistic work, they're the professionals. And then there's these amateurs that do it for the love. They're artists. They do it for the passion. They spend endless hours in order to do these things. And they do it not for economic value, but for the sake of the love. And is that okay, you know? Like... Is the accessibility of the tech means of producing these these things like is that does that make it that we don't have to pay people at all for their work? You know, is that work that they're doing? I would suggest it is in creating those products, um, but we sometimes don't think about that. We we group these things into free labor, you know, but 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 they work, but, but they may not be considered a professional. So that's like the amateurization of the field. Um, further scares me and the access to the information communications technologies further scares me Mm -hmm. Um, because we might think like what's going to happen next like what is the state of journalism 
are these amateurs going to take over because of their passion and love? Yeah, cause, I mean, like, no matter how many amateurs you have, like, 10,000 amateurs could do the work of a professional. Or, I mean, you could just keep getting more because they, you don't pay Right, money. you know, a billion monkeys on a billion typewriters will eventually produce an English degree. And the same thing with students. You have a lot of students who want to achieve their degree, their goal, and that's, yeah, that's very interesting. I think an eye-opener for everyone. So thank you so much, Alan, for your time. No problem. Um, mm-hmm. That was extremely interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all the best of luck in your work, and I look very much forward to seeing what you find. Oh, yeah, I just want to say, uh, what, um, if somebody wanted, do you have like a blog or a website or a, a, a Twitter or anything? No, no? Okay. All right. Uh, so everyone out there, uh, GradCast is a production of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. We produce this radio show every two weeks, but we make a show every week. And if you want to find that out, we have a website you can go to, gradcastradio.ca. It's a great place. You can find all of our podcasts that you will not hear on the radio. You can also, um, if you are interested in coming on the show, talking about your own research, good line for your CV. Or if you're interested in coming on the show as, or giving us comments, criticisms, uh, we prefer not death threats. Those are uh, less good. Uh, you can send them to gradcastradio at gmail.com. And we appreciate it. We love to hear back from people who are talking to us. And so with that, I hope you guys have an amazing time. And take Bye. care. Bye. 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 Take care. That's all we got for this week. If you like this episode, share it with someone. Check us all out on Twitter and Facebook. Both you can find through Gradcast Radio. You can go to our website to see more episodes at gradcastradio.ca. And if you want to come on the show and talk about your own research, great line for your CV, go to gradcastradio at gmail.com. The theme is Happy Boy by Kevin McLeod, and we will see you guys next time.